Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist. And coming up on today's show, as companies around the world face a shortage of semiconductors, the brains of computer systems, does the world's biggest chip maker need a hard reboot? With this massive projected growth in demand, you do have to wonder whether Intel is able to stay on the cutting edge indefinitely. Multiple missions to Mars are preparing to investigate signs of extraterrestrial life. But one astronomer believes he's already seen evidence of intelligent aliens. Not everyone agrees with him. One of my colleagues said to me, this object is so weird, I wish it never existed. Now, such a statement is appalling. I mean, a scientist should be happy at whatever evidence nature gives us and try to explain it. And why might parents of daughters be more likely to divorce than those with sons. Several studies in America have found robust evidence of a link between a couple's firstborn being a girl and their likelihood of splitting up. But first, semiconductor chips are what makes up a computer's processing and memory units. They're the essential component of all digital devices, from phones and gaming consoles to industrial robots and cars. But right now, they're in short supply. Early in the pandemic, chipmakers reduced their output as their customers were forced to slow or halt production lines. But even as they ramped back up, a surge in demand for chip-dependent devices is now outstripping the supply. In the heart of Silicon Valley lies Intel. The company led the industry in chip design and manufacturing for decades. In fact, Intel chips are one of the few strategic tech products still made in America. But just when computer chips are becoming more critical and scarce, Intel appears to be losing its edge. At first glance, it's a bit hard to see that Intel is in trouble at all. Tim Cross is The Economist technology editor. It's the biggest chip maker in the world. It's been trading that title back and forward with Samsung for a while. It's one of the few remaining integrated device manufacturers, which means it's a company that both designs chips and makes them itself. It has a 93% market share when you look at powerful, lucrative chips that go in data centers and on server racks. And even in desktop PCs, its share is around 80%. But um, markets don't seem to be particularly impressed by those numbers. And if you look at its share price of late, it's underperformed its rivals pretty noticeably. Tim, for a company that people think is struggling, it sounds like these are pretty good problems to have. What's going wrong? I think a couple of things. So one is Intel has to design chips and make them. And in the past, this was a sort of big boon to the company because this is sort of real cutting edge kind of voodoo science stuff. And the, the idea in the chip industry is you want to shrink the components that go onto an integrated circuit, shrink them as small as possible and do it at a rapid pace every couple of years. And Intel was so dedicated to that idea that for many years, their business strategy was called 
TikTok, which was meant to imply that it was just totally reliable. Every couple of years, they would shrink the components on the chips. When you do that, the components perform better. So they switch faster, they use less energy, and the result is chips that are better than the previous generation. And for Intel, for years, for decades, this was a virtuous spiral where all the money it got from selling these best-in-class chips, it could then plow into its factories to ensure that it could shrink sooner than anybody else, which meant it could sell even better chips, which meant it got even more money. But in the last half decade, that's all kind of broken down. They sort of lost their manufacturing mojo a bit. So they were meant to launch their 10 nanometer chips, which were the latest and greatest in 2015 or 2016. But in the end, they didn't come out till 2019, which was a sort of unprecedented delay. And and that whole manufacturing process still isn't really working properly. And then the next step down, if you like, was to make seven nanometer chips. And we heard on an earnings call last year that that's now been delayed, this time so far at least by about six months. But I think a lot of people are wondering if if maybe it'll prove longer than that. So it has these manufacturing delays, but it's also missed out on a lot of really important trends in computing, notably the mobile phone. How did it blow it? Well, exactly. This is the other problem. As you say, they've missed a couple of big trends. You mentioned smartphones and you know smartphones are the most popular computers ever made. They also missed out on the trend for GPUs, which are these chips that originally designed to accelerate video game graphics, but have also found a big use in AI. And that's why a firm like NVIDIA, which has revenue that's just a fraction of Intel's, has a market cap that's half as big again. The other problem they've got is that because of the way the semiconductor industry is going and because of the huge amounts of value you build on top of these chips, a lot of their big customers are starting to turn into their competitors. So last year, we saw Apple say it was going to drop Intel's chips from its laptops and desktops in favor of custom chips that Apple has designed in-house and that are derived from the chips that power its its iPhones. And then we've also seen Amazon, which is the world's biggest cloud computing company, you know, buys Intel chips by the lorry load. They have been deploying these chips called Graviton, which again are in-house designs. Amazon's designed them itself and has them made by third parties. And there are rumors that Microsoft's going to be doing something similar. So its market is shrinking. And as you said, it's got a bit of a history of missing new ones. Okay, so I kind of understand how you can blow it in manufacturing. That's really hard and you make a misstep. I could also understand how you can sort of miss a big trend. What I have a hard time understanding is why a consumer electronics company or a consumer retailing company that uses IT would be designing its own chips Well, I think it's a question of scale. So for many, many years, that's exactly right. Designing chips is hard. Manufacturing them is also hard. If you're, say, Hewlett-Packard or a bank or something, why bother designing your own when you can just buy them off the shelf? But the cloud guys in particular, you know, these are huge companies now, much, much bigger than Intel itself. They have money to burn and they deploy these things at an absolutely enormous scale. Now, if you're Intel, you have to design chips that are kind of good at everything that all your different customers want them to do. If you're Amazon or perhaps Microsoft or Apple, indeed, you can design chips to do exactly what you want them to do. And as is always the case, a specialist chip designed for your workload is going to do better than a sort of generalist one. And then the manufacturing problem is taken care of by another big trend, which is the rise of these, uh, they're called foundries, these sort of companies that specialize in manufacturing chips. They don't design their own at all. You just go to them and say, hey, I've got a chip, I'd like someone to make it, and they manufacture it for you. The big one is the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, or TSMC. So this strikes at the heart of Intel's business model, and its strategy seems to be awry. 
What is it going to do? So some people think it needs to change that model entirely. So Daniel Loeb, who's an activist investor with a fairly sizable stake in the firm, he's been urging it to abandon its factories completely and just ditch this integrated model. And on its face, that maybe looks quite attractive because Intel spent something like $14 billion on, on capital expenditure last year. And almost all of that will have gone on its chip factories because it's, it's an expensive business. And the firm's most direct competitor is a company called AMD, which has been doing really well in recent years. And they spun off their chip factories way back in 2009. But Intel's appointed a new boss, a guy called Pat Gelsinger, who took over on February the 15th. And he seems more minded to kind of keep the company on its existing course. And he's very, very much a, a chip off the old block. He's a sort of Intel man through and through. He started there at age 18. You know, worked there for about three decades. He's an engineer by training, and this is a company that sort of always lionized engineers. And he hasn't laid out his strategy in detail yet, but from what he's said so far, he seems minded to keep the factories, to try and get Intel back to the cutting edge while trying to jump into some of these markets that it missed the first time around. So the company's just in the process of launching a new range of these GPU chips that are designed for graphics and AI, and that'll be the first set of discrete GPUs they've had since the 1990s. So that might be successful looking at the here and now and seeing what your rivals are doing, the rivals that are outperforming you, and then doing the same thing, but better. What's going on in the future of IT that you see, Tim, that you think that Intel should have on its radar screen? Well, I think the two big trends are just growth in different things. There's constant growth in demand for computing power. Cloud computing data centers, they're sprouting up like mushrooms. We're putting chips into all kinds of things that never had chips in them before. So one option is to try and focus on these new markets to bring in new money. Intel's tried before to have a go at the Internet of Things. It hasn't really worked out so far. I think their new GPUs are an attempt to capture sort of more of the cloud spending, at least in part, because these things are good for AI, which is a huge kind of growth area. But the other big growth trend is the cost of staying at the cutting edge. One of the sort of iron laws of chip making is as you push the physics and the engineering further and further, the cost just goes up and up and up. And if you look at history, the number of companies able to hang on the cutting edge basically has fallen from around two dozen, I think, at the turn of the century to really just three today, which is TSMC, Samsung, and arguably still Intel. And even with this sort of massive projected growth in demand, you do have to wonder whether all three companies will be able to stay on the cutting edge indefinitely. Tim Cross, thank you very much. Thanks, Ken. For lots more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist. In this week's issue, we explore Joe Biden's plans to decarbonize America. And in the science section, our correspondent explores a new generation of electric motorboats. Babbage listeners can get a special introductory offer by visiting economist.com slash podcast offer. And don't forget to tell them Ken sent you. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Rust-Oleum. 
On September 6, 2017, a strange object was noticed soaring through the solar system. Pulled by the sun's gravity, it accelerated to around 200,000 miles per hour as it passed. Then, within a month, it was gone, continuing its trajectory towards the constellation of Pegasus. Astronomers had never seen anything like it. Hypotheses ranged from an iceberg of frozen hydrogen to a sort of interstellar dust bunny. None of these entirely explained all of its features. And to one scientist, the evidence increasingly pointed in one direction. However provocative his colleagues found it, that the object could have been created by an intelligent civilization beyond Earth. The object is Oumuamua, and the name means a scout or a messenger from far away in the Hawaiian language. Avi Loeb is an astrophysicist and a professor at Harvard University, and he was interviewed for Babbage by our science correspondent, Alok Ja. It was the very first object that was spotted near Earth that came from outside the solar system. And at first, astronomers thought it must be a comet or an asteroid, the type of rocks that we have seen before from within the solar system. But then it turned out that the object was very weird. As it was tumbling, its brightness changed by a factor of 10, implying that it has a very extreme geometry, most likely flat, pancake-shaped. And uh, later on, it was found that the object exhibits an extra push away from the sun, a gentle force pushing it away that declines inversely with distance squared. The object did not show any cometary tail, no gases around it. And so this push could not have been provided by the rocket effect, the way it is usually the case for comets. And the only uh, explanation that came to my mind was that it's pushed by reflecting sunlight. And in order for that to be effective, the object needs to be extremely thin. And that leads to the possibility that it might have been produced by another technological civilization. And so light sails, in the way you describe them, don't exist in nature. They, they wouldn't be created naturally. This would have to be something that is a technological product. Yes, it needs to be a technological artifact. And I should say there was another object discovered in September 2020, just a few months ago, and it did exhibit an extra push away from the sun without a cometary tail. And as it turns out, this object is a rocket booster launched in 1966, a lunar lander that we produced. We know that it's artificial in origin. Oumuamua uh, might have been produced by someone else. Now, it's not sort of mainstream science, as it were, to um, end up thinking that something has come from uh, an extraterrestrial intelligence when, when it's first spotted in the solar system. I suppose through various means, people try and work out all sorts of uh, origins. I'm just curious how you and your colleagues came to the conclusion that this was a, a strong hypothesis for this particular object, Oumuamua. Well, nothing else seemed more plausible to me. And in fact, in the couple of years that passed since my paper was published, there were some mainstream astronomers that tried to explain all the features of this object from a natural origin. And they always came back to something that we have never seen before, such as a hydrogen iceberg, frozen hydrogen, a chunk that is as big as a football field, tumbling every eight hours, and emitting gas that we can't see, hydrogen. 
But the, the problem with that is that frozen hydrogen would have been evaporated very quickly along its journey by absorbing starlight. And so we showed in a paper that this is not a viable explanation. And to me, the artificial origin sounded more plausible than these explanations. Therefore, we should definitely put it on the table and consider it. We know now that about half of all the sun-like stars have a planet the size of the Earth, roughly at the same separation. And so these planets, these billions of planets in the Milky Way galaxy alone, could potentially lead to technological civilizations and uh, not necessarily exist right now because they may have died by now. But the point is we can look for the relics. And that should be the mainstream conservative approach rather than this being at the periphery of astronomical research. To, to be fair, it's quite a, a profound claim. And so I guess maybe the, the skepticism gets higher when it comes to something like that. Well, there is this uh, statement that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Um, I don't think so. I think um, what uh, you regard as extraordinary really depends on the eyes of the beholder. And some people think of dark matter as being exotic and extraordinary, while others would say, no, it's uh, just another particle that we haven't found yet. Uh, I remember coming out of the room where there was a seminar on Oumuamua, this uh, weird object. And uh, one of my colleagues, who is a mainstream astronomer that worked on rocks in the solar system for decades, said to me, this object is so weird, I wish it never existed. Now, such a statement is appalling. I mean, a scientist should never say that. We should be happy at whatever evidence nature gives us and try to explain it. Science um, does, as you say, discover new things because, because of anomalies, and that's how all progress works, and, uh, and that's completely reasonable, I think. But also it works on consensus. So given that Oumuamua is now far away and we've got no real feasible way of looking at it or testing it, I mean, how scientific is your hypothesis that it's a technological object? Because we, we can't get any more evidence or information about it. Well, science is about reproducibility. There is no doubt about that, and it's, it should be based on evidence rather than prejudice, right? So the way to proceed in this case is to find more objects of the same nature. The Pan-STARRS telescope looked only for such objects over a period of a few years, and it found Oumuamua. That means that if it will continue in the survey for a few more years, it will find another Oumuamua. And in fact, the Vera Rubin Observatory that will start operations in, in three years will find even more. It will find 10 times more. The point is, uh, based on the Copernican principle, such an object is unlikely to be alone because we just observe the sky for a short period of time. And uh, as a result, we can find more of the same and reproduce what we have seen before. And so uh, there is no doubt that this opens a new window into searching for interstellar trash or, or space trash, space debris uh, from other civilizations. That's a completely different approach for finding evidence from radio signals, which rely on the civilization as being active at the time that you observe it. Here, you are looking for relics, and it's just a question of how many relics per unit volume exist around you. 
Arby, thank you very much. Uh, my heart wants to believe that this is a technological object because uh, <laughs> I, I really hope that we have found some evidence of extraterrestrial life. Uh, but but my brain wants me to be more sceptical. But I tell you what, if you do, I know that you're involved in the in the Starshot mission to try and communicate with Proxima Centauri. So if you do find extraterrestrial intelligence and incontrovertible evidence, can you tell us here on Babbage first, please? Oh, sure. Um, I should tell you that uh, Steven Spielberg asked me to do the same with him. Okay, great. Well, look, we, we can have the podcast rights. He can have the film rights. Okay. Um, Avi, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Our thanks to Avi Loeb and to Alok Jha. After blasting through space for more than six months, on February 18th, NASA's Perseverance mission will attempt to land on Mars. A successful landing would be groundbreaking in the field of space exploration, and it's likely to give us a clue as to whether there is life on the Red Planet. Make sure you listen to the February 18th edition of The Intelligence, our daily podcast, where Alec will weigh up the chances of finding evidence of extraterrestrial life there and what to expect if we do. Parenting can be a rewarding part of life, but as well as a source of joy, children can also be, well, a slight source of stress. Has and for some relationships, that stress can sadly be too much. Daughters, in particular, have long been blamed for higher divorce rates. This has been ascribed to society's historical preference for sons. But a new study suggests otherwise. Since the 1980s, several studies in America have found robust evidence of a link between a couple's firstborn being a girl and their likelihood of splitting up. Sasha Nauta is our public policy editor. It's a small effect, but it is a significant one that we've seen again and again. And I think this is fascinating because it raises all sorts of questions into the why, of course. Researchers long speculated that this was yet another expression of, of a preference for sons, with men more likely to run off at the sound of, it's a girl. Sasha, that is an incredibly dispiriting assessment, and I cannot believe that it's correct in the 21st century. So tell me, what is going on here? Well, we need to unpack this a little bit. What we have so far not really understood is the why, and therefore researchers long sort of leapt to some preference. What this study does, what no study has done before, is really dig into the why by looking specifically at what ages this increased risk of divorce comes in. And what we know now is that there is something about the teenage years. So from 13, you see a fairly sharp increase in the risk of families where the firstborn is a girl. And that's fascinating. It raises all sorts of questions about the kids, but especially the parents. What is it about that phase that makes it more likely? Put together, the risk of divorce is not that much higher um, in families with a daughter than families with a son. But in that critical window, 13 to 18, if you take two couples that are otherwise exactly the same, and one has a 15-year-old daughter and the other has a 15-year-old son, the couple with the daughter will be 9% more likely to get a divorce that year than the couple with a son. So that is certainly significant. This is all very interesting. How did they find this out? So the study looks at the Netherlands and the USA, um, and it was a very comprehensive database with millions of heterosexual couples with divorces and, and dissolved partnerships over decades. And they were able to look at the birth years of the children and the gender, etc. 
The second part of their research was very much based on digging through surveys, parental surveys in particular, about the life satisfaction that they reported, quarrelling, attitudes to divorce as their kids grew up. And this indeed confirmed that parents with a daughter were more likely to quarrel over parenting than parents with a son. I'm talking about the teenage years here. Um, It confirmed that father-daughter relationships were more strained than any other family relationship in those years. And it confirmed that mothers of teenage daughters became more open to the idea of divorce in the teenage years. And teenage years in general are a time where parents fight a lot over how much control their children should be allowed to take over their own decisions, what they wear, who their friends are, who they date, what sort of job they do. And these surveys that I've just mentioned confirm the idea that that is even tougher in relationships where the oldest is a is a girl. Okay, well, Sasha, I actually am the father of a teenage daughter. So what can I do? Well, Ken, part of it is, of course, just being aware of the turbulence of the teenage years, regardless of whether you have a son or a daughter, but perhaps being particularly aware of any friction that you might have with your partner over raising a, a girl. But there is another thing which which you have very little control over, but I'm curious, did you did you grow up with a sister by any chance? Oh my God, don't get me started. Did I ever? Oh, I'm still scarred by the experience. Well, Ken, you should phone her up and you should thank her because the good news is that parents where the father grew up with a sister suffer none of this additional daughter divorce risk at all. And that's quite a striking finding. And it adds further fuel, in my opinion, to the idea that gender-related conflict, so parents arguing over things like curfews and skirt lengths, may well be to blame. Well, the good news is I have an angelic daughter, a lovely wife, and the world's most marvelous sister with whom I'm still on speaking terms. And Sasha, thank you very much. Thanks, Ken. And that's all for this episode of Babbage. And while you're with us, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by Jason Hoskin, Amika Shortino-Nolan, and Abby Soye Oshindairo. I'm Kenneth Kukie, and in London, where I'm off to spend some quality time, I'm sure with my kids, but with my long-suffering and patient wife, this is The Economist. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.